Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and today we're at episode two of what's going to be probably a pretty awesome webcast. And today we're going to be checking out Nightscape Photography Basics. Now today is going to be really kind of down to the the most basic for DSLR and mirrorless photography. So if you're a more advanced user, uh, this might be a good update for you. If you've never played with a DSLR or a mirrorless camera, today is going to be awesome. So uh, this is always good stuff for people to know. We have a ton of information to go over today. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into this. And if you have any questions, we have the live chat opened. So uh, let's get started with it now and we'll get going. All right, so Nightscape photography. Nightscape photography, of course, many people know of as Milky Way photography or wide angle photography um, of the night sky. And there's all kinds of stuff here that we're going to be uh, covering. Now, for me, astrophotography has a wide variety of topics to cover. So today we're just gonna focus on uh, nightscape, but let's go over the three types um, of photography that we can do in astronomy. And this is just how I break it down. I work with a lot of people, so this is kind of how I break it down to so many of those people. What it sounds like, it is blending the night sky with a foreground horizon. And if you do standard photography of a landscape during the day, or if you've ever gone anywhere and you've taken a picture of a landscape, that's a landscape. Now imagine doing that at night. And that's what I like to call, or many of us call, nightscapes. So that's the first type of photography. And this happens to be one of the biggest uh, intros for people who are getting into astrophotography. This is normally the route a lot of people are coming from nowadays to get into our amazing hobby. The next type of astrophotography I like to call wide field photography. Now wide field to me is actually a star field and there's no longer any foreground uh, horizon line or anything. It is just a star field. And for the most part, this is typically done with between a 24 millimeter lens and I would say up to about three or 400 millimeter because 400 millimeters about where tell three to 400 millimeters about where a telescope would start. So that's what I call uh, wide field photography. So we have nightscapes with a foreground. We have wide field with a star field. And then of course the third type of astrophotography. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, wide field photography, it can be done on a tripod with a camera, but most of the time it's done on a tracker, um, like our Star Adventure, and we'll get more into that later. But the third type of photography for astronomy is what I like to call telescopic, um, and that of course means you are using a telescope. So we're talking about 400 millimeters and longer focal length. Uh, of course there are uh, telephoto lenses available nowadays like the 150 to 600s from like Sigma and Tamron and stuff like that. There, there's more people who have these long focal length lenses than there was before but eventually you want to switch over to a telescope because you need the focal length to resolve that target. 
So that would be the third type, would be telescopic astrophotography. Now, for nightscapes, what we're covering today is we're going to keep this really, really basic. And if you've ever wanted to get into astrophotography, nightscapes is the best place to start because it does not require a lot of specialty equipment. Now, to get started, you really just need three basic things. You need a camera that has the ability to adjust all of its settings, and we'll discuss that here in a second. You need a lens, preferably a wide-angle lens, and a tripod. Pretty, pretty basic stuff. But the most important thing is you're becoming familiar with your equipment before heading out. I have a lot of people who've purchased equipment or gotten equipment and then they go out to a dark sky and they don't know what they're doing and they come back frustrated. So what I tell a lot of people is go in your backyard, mess around with your camera. I understand you're not going to see the Milky Way from there or whatever it is, little faint thing you want to shoot. And that's okay because that's where you want to screw up. Now, I'm not big on sports, but for example, um, you train, like example of your football player, and a football player is going to practice, practice, practice on the practice field, and that's the same as your backyard, and the star parties or dark sky locations are your big games. So you, you practice, and then when you go out, you use all that you've practiced out there. You don't want to be wasting your time in a dark sky location and be fumbling around in the dark with stuff you don't know. You want to make sure when you're out there, because a lot of us don't have access to those dark skies all the time, you want to make sure you get the most out of that uh, experience when you're out there. So become familiar, with, become familiar with your equipment while you're at home. Now, getting started, there's three things that you're going to have to know about adjusting on your camera. Is how to adjust the exposure, how to adjust the ISO, and how to adjust the aperture. And in this presentation today, these are the fundamental things we're going to be covering. That's why I said if this is, uh, if you're beyond this, I understand. But uh, you want to make sure you have these three basics down. And this is always a good refresher for a lot of people. So the first thing that we want to know on our cameras is going to be modes. And there's a lot of different settings on a camera. Uh, most cameras nowadays can use nightscape, can be done, or can do, nightscape photography. Uh, Canon, Nikon, Sony, Olympus, Fuji, Pentax, pretty much any of those cameras nowadays can do this type of photography. And you want to make sure that you've got the settings right to do that. So the first thing you need to become familiar with is the right mode to make all these adjustments. Now that mode is called manual mode. Now this may be different for different camera bodies, but fundamentally it's the same. Most cameras that have the ability to change these functions have a little dial on the top or on some of the new mirrorless cameras that will actually be internal in the settings somewhere. So you're going to have to become familiar with your equipment first and then start to fumble around with some of the settings. And that's going to be found in manual mode. Now inside manual mode, it gives you in manual mode. So the biggest thing there is you want to make sure you're set in manual mode. So the first thing 
that we're going to start with is ISO. ISO can be found normally on the top of your camera or is in the settings somewhere. You'll see a little button at the top of the camera or somewhere in your settings where you can activate this and adjust it. So look for the ISO button on your camera or on your display. Now, there's probably a question of what is ISO if you're not familiar with these cameras. Well, ISO is basically the sensitivity of your camera sensor. If you're an astrophotographer and you're using like a ZWO or a CMOS camera, gain is very similar to this. So this is basically the sensitivity of your camera sensor. The higher the number, the more sensitive your camera is. The lower the number, the less sensitive. And there's pluses and minuses to these settings. The higher the ISO, the more so we're able to push to higher ISOs and keep a cleaner image. For me, uh, what I've found with a lot of these cameras is somewhere between 1600 and 6400 or higher, depending if your camera can handle it. Some of the new Sonys and you can play with. Each camera is going to be different. If you have an older camera, some of them aren't going to do very good at 1600. Uh, some of the newer cameras can do 6400 easy. Uh, it just depends on your camera. So for an example, just to give you an idea of what this looks like, we of course have three different exposure. Uh, the exposure is actually the same. The aperture of the camera is the same. We're going to cover those in a minute, but the ISO has changed. These are all taken at the exact same time right after each other from a dark sky location. So you can actually see the advantages of the exposures or the ISO settings. So as you can see 1600 for 30 seconds, you start to see the Milky Way. At 6400, it becomes blatantly apparent. And at 12,500, it's way there. But you can start to see that it's not as crisp as it might be on the lower ISOs. So this is something to play around with. And it's going to vary from location to location as well. If you're in a more light polluted location, you might not be able to push as high because it's going to bring in more garbage, essentially, because of light pollution. Where in a dark sky, uh, these images were shot. This was shot at the Grand Canyon. Uh, there's all kinds of room to play with. So it's something you have to experiment with. And it, it's a digital camera. Don't worry about it. You can always delete it. The next major thing that we want to cover of course is exposure and exposure is basically how much light gets let in while the shutter of the camera is open so when you hear a click on your camera that's the shutter going off now in astrophotography that shutter doesn't just go click it actually goes and opens up for an extended period of time and actually lets the light fill the pixels on the camera Longer exposures, the more light the camera is going to collect. So this is something that you want to be doing for astrophotography. Now for nightscape work, you generally want to aim for about 30 seconds or more. And that's going to really depend on what exactly you're shooting and your location. Again, you want to experiment with this. But generally, most cameras that have adjustable capabilities can go up to 30 seconds. If you can go longer than that, that's even better because it gives you more controls and the ability to dig deeper into the nighttime sky. 
here's some examples of that. So aperture and the ISO has been maintained and the exposure time has changed. So as you can see, 5, 15, 30 second exposures, you're starting to get more dig into the night sky with a longer exposure. And there are different techniques that we can actually use to use shorter exposures and bring out more detail. And we'll go into that maybe in a future episode and learn about stacking and processing images. Uh, that'll be a more complex thing, but we'll definitely look into doing that in the future. The last of the three major connections that you're gonna want is aperture. Now aperture is basically how wide the actual lens is opened up. Now in astronomy, of course, we all talk about, I want a bigger telescope, I want a bigger telescope. That's aperture. Uh, that's what you want to be aiming for is wider, collecting more light in less time. The wider the aperture, the more light you're going to get. And there's advantages of that. You don't have to worry so much about stars trailing or maybe you could reduce the ISO so it's less noisy. App, getting more light in less time can be helpful. Now, most lenses, the aperture is listed on the lens itself. You'll actually see it as a number. Uh, they call it an F ratio. And most kit lenses that come with the cameras uh, out of the box would be F3.5 to F4, which isn't too bad. Uh, you can get lenses as low as f1.2. There's even 0.95 lenses on the market, but you're getting really particular. Uh, so that wide aperture is going to let a ton of light through and allow you to catch more in less time because there's more light funneling through the lens. Now, why do the aperture more light? However, there's a couple things to keep in mind with a lot of that, and there's some technical stuff that will actually uh, appear on that. So you want to make sure, we'll go into more of the details if you want to know more about optics and how to get rid of some of the aberrations and stuff like that. But um, for beginners, if you're just getting started, open your lens up the widest you can to collect that light. But uh, if you can stop down the lens a little bit, like if you have a 1.2 lens or let's say a 2.8 lens and you stop that down to f3.5 or f4, you'll get better correction on the edge of the field. So, But we can talk about that at another uh, date when we're talking a little bit more technical. Now on the side of the lens, like I said, you'll see generally see a number. And this particular lens here, you see it's four. So the F ratio on this is F4. That's the widest you can open that up. F4 is not too bad. There are wider lenses. Uh, you can actually go up to say like F2.8s. Uh, a lot of zoom lenses nowadays can go up to F2.8. There's some new ones coming out that are F2, which is crazy. Uh, but there is quite a difference between the two lenses. So an F2.8 is gonna let in about 89% more light than and f4 is going to and that can be pretty substantial in terms of how much light you're going to collect for example here's an f2.8 lens and here's an f4 and you can see that you're getting a lot more light and details coming out in the f2.8 lens 
F4, because it is stopped down, it's probably going to be a little bit more crisp, a little bit better correction, but in order to uh, bring back the light that you might be missing from the F2.8 lens, you may have to take more exposures using a smaller aperture lens and stack. So, But that's another thing that we can get to in the future um, in another episode about processing and seeing things like that. Now, focal lengths uh, for beginners, wider tends to be better if you're doing a lot of nightscape work where you're doing a landscape shot, like the picture you see right here. Uh, this was shot in Maui. This is a 14 millimeter Sigma lens. And 14 lets a ton of field in, but most nightscape work is generally done somewhere between 14 and 35 millimeter. Uh, 20 and 25 is really nice as well. It's not as extreme. But you can still take some nice images with kit lenses, like on the Canon Rebels or the Nikons. Uh, the standard kit lens is an 18 to 55 millimeter. Some of the higher end lenses that come with them are 24 to 105s. And but all of those will work. It's it's good for just to go out and mess with. So it's something you can check out. But always experiment with what you've got before dumping more money into other lenses. And you can always rent lenses online or borrow lenses to try them before you buy them because let's be honest optics aren't particularly cheap here's an example of different focal lengths just to give you an idea of the field so 24 is rather wide 50 millimeter 70 millimeter so this is these are all things that are going to allow you to frame your objects differently uh, on when you're out shooting and that's something that you can mess with and trying different focal lengths can let you explore different ways of framing an object and seeing something different. Generally, longer focal lengths, once you hit about 50 millimeter, you're starting to get into more of that wide field stuff and you're going to require a tracker. And we'll get into that here in a second as well. And I do see your guys' questions. I do appreciate you guys writing in. I just have a ton of information for you today. So we have some of our team writing in as well. Um, Astro Exploring, that image from Hawaii was shot on Maui um, on the beach. Uh, we did go up to Haleakala, but it got clouded out, so that was unfortunate. Hi, Bob. So let's take everything that we just learned here and try to apply it in the field. Now the three things, of course, you're going to want to remember. First, ISO, that's the sensitivity of your sensor. I generally recommend somewhere between 1600 and 6400. If your camera can push higher, that's awesome. Good for you. But um, just play with it. Experiment with it. The next big thing is exposure or how long the shutter is going to be open. If you can get about 10 seconds worth of exposure, things start to get fun. But if you can push up to 30, then you get more punch. And then if your camera has the ability to go longer, uh, that can generally be done either internally in the camera or with an intervalometer or an external trigger. So something for you to check out. That can be something you can always add later. And lastly, we have aperture or how wide the lens may be opened 
Now the, the wider apertures are gonna help collect more light, uh, but you generally will probably get sharper if you stop the lens down a little bit because camera lenses aren't really designed to have a nice star field. They're designed for generally taking pictures of people. And we pay a lot of money to have the center of the image real sharp, but we don't really care about the background. We generally want it to be blown out um, when you're doing photography. Where nightscapes, we need it to be sharp across the field. So generally, if you have a fast lens, you're going to want to stop it down a little bit. If you've got uh, an f2.8, try going to f3.5 or f4. And if you've got like a fancy 1.8 or 1.2, try stopping that down to like f2. Um, but mess around with it because every lens is going to be a little bit different. The larger apertures, uh, Nicole, are going to obviously let more light in. But if you stop it down a little bit, it's going to be a little bit sharper and help the lens be a little bit more corrected. The longer focal length, however, will give you more image scale and appear to give you more resolution on that. Uh, just some side notes here. Uh, set your lens to manual focus. Uh, there are some new cameras uh, that have the ability to autofocus on stars. There's a new Olympus camera that can actually, as of this taping, um, that can actually autofocus on stars. Uh, they just came out with it. I think it's one of their EM1 cameras. You'll have to check it out. But it's a new feature that the Olympus cameras have. But for general, you want to do the uh, manual focus on your lens so it gives you full control of the focus. Uh, turn your image stabilization off. You're, you're generally going to be on a tripod, and it I found that it can screw things up. If you're trying to do a nightscape and it's uh, registering anything, it gets kind of weird and can mess up your images. So uh, turn your image stabilization off. And of course, if you can, a lot of the new cameras have this, set your camera to live view mode, and then that gives you the ability to zoom in digitally, and it'll help you be able to focus a little bit better if you're shooting manually. Now, we get the question a lot of how long can I expose for? And I wouldn't take this as gospel but it's something that you can definitely do in the field just to give you an idea of what to work with so this is called the 500 rule some of you may have heard about this but it's a small little thing that you can do in the field or something you could calculate and i have it calculated for a lot of my lenses so i kind of know roughly how long i can expose without the need of any kind of tracking system so this is called the 500 rule and that basically states, how long can I go before stars start to trail in my shots? Because as many of us know, if you're shooting on a tripod and you don't have a tracking system, over time, as the Earth rotates, the star fields are going to blur. And if you have a wider angle lens, you can get away with longer exposures. And if you're more zoomed in on a telephoto, you're going to see that faster. So... How can we figure out how long we can get away with that before having to move into a tracking system? So just an example, here's 70 millimeters. On the left, you have streaked stars. So 30 seconds at 70 millimeters isn't going to work because all the stars are trailed. Unless that's the look you're going for. 
and you can do stuff like that if you want it's called star trails it's kind of a fun shot to do but for the most of us once you've done a couple star trails you want to probably start getting that those fainter objects and more detail and that's just it's going to take longer exposures but you're going to need tracking to make sure they don't blur and especially if you're going to start pushing past 50 millimeter focal length and going longer as we have a lot of people who start doing nightscapes and a lot of them they'll start with a 14 or a 20 or a 24 and that's all well and good but then you want to start shooting individual things maybe some nebulas maybe certain chunks of the milky way and that's where more focal length is going to be and the more you magnify how long we can actually go so the 500 rule is just a basic calculation it's not something that you need to hold as gospel so we need to define the focal length of your lens and we're going to divide that by 500. I didn't have enough time to actually look up and figure out why it's 500. I know there's a reason for it, but I'll we can check it out. So for example, let's say you have a 14 millimeter lens. There's a lot of great little 14s. 14's a nice focal length if you're doing nightscape work. Uh, the Rokinon 14 f2.8 is a pretty inexpensive and generally good lens. Uh, I have a lot of friends who've used that lens and they're a couple hundred bucks. Um, so that's a good focal length to start out with. Of course, everyone, all the major manufacturers have their own wide field lenses. Uh, another company called Irix has an 11 millimeter f4 lens and they have a 15 f2.4 lens. So there's a lot of focal lengths within that field or focal length range that you can use. But for example, let's start with 14. So we're gonna take 14 millimeters and we're gonna divide that by 500 and that gives us 35.7. So that basically means that we can do about 36 seconds without the need of a tracking system. And at 14 millimeters with an F2.8 or real fast aperture, that's plenty. But you can always do more if you want, but just understand that if you go longer, you'll start to notice trailing and if you go really long you'll definitely notice trailing so it's just something you can experiment with and this isn't something that you can always experiment with it you can always break the ice and go past that rule just experiment with it don't be afraid to try different things just because one person says it doesn't mean you have to stick to it these are just kind of a basic framework for you to kind of know roughly where to go so here's some common focal lengths that uh, I've used and a lot of others have used and just to give you an idea of how long you can go. So 14 millimeter, we just did that one, it'd be about 36 seconds. On a 24, you're now at 20 seconds. 50, you're at 10 seconds, 85, six seconds, 135, 3.7 seconds, and 200, you're at 2.5 seconds. And if you've got a wide aperture lens, you can cram a lot of stuff in those exposure times. If you've got a really nice fast 24 millimeter, that's like an f1.4, you stop it to f2, you get really nice sharp stars, you can get a lot done in 20 seconds. But as you start to inch up in focal lengths, like the 50 plus, then things get a little tighter and you don't have as much room to work with because you're gonna start streaking things really, really quickly. So then comes the need for 
uh, specialized equipment and that specialized equipment of course is a tracker so Yeah, we're not going to spend all day going through tracking mounts. Uh, we're just going to do some real basic stuff because I'm sure there's some questions that are going on. Uh, we actually pounded through this a lot faster uh, this time around than I expected. We're only at 34 minutes, so we have about a half an hour. But we'll go through some tracking mounts. And next week, we're probably going to be doing all about trackers just to give more detailed. So tracking mounts. So let's say you've... You've tried your lenses, you've gotten into nightscapes, now you want to start getting deeper images, longer focal lengths, and all that fun stuff to really start digging into the nighttime sky. Now we need a tracker. So tracking mounts have the ability, basically once they're aligned to the North Pole, uh, or Polaris, they allow it to the camera to follow whatever you put it on, essentially. Now, I'd like to note, because I get a lot of questions about this, when people finally get a tracking mount, they'll call us up and they'll ask, why is it not moving? Well, it's not moving because the stars don't move that fast. Most of these trackers don't slew across the sky like a go-to or a bigger mount. They're just made to follow the stars as they move across the sky. So it, it takes some time. So if you get something like this, regardless of the company, if you get a tracker and you set it up inside and it's it's on, but it doesn't appear to be moving, it's probably working. So go outside, set it up, and actually use it outside. Don't expect it to just look like it's doing something inside because it's going to look a lot like grass growing or paint drying. Uh, we get that a lot, and 99% of the time everything works just fine. So... What are the major advantages of using a tracking mount? You obviously can go longer exposures, and this is beneficial because you can lower your ISO and you can get cleaner images that are less noisy and staticky looking. So longer exposures, lower ISO, big, big advantage there. You can also use smaller lens apertures. You can take that uh, aperture like on your f2.8 lens and stop that down to f4 or 5.6 and get a lot sharper images all the stars at the edge will look nice and sharp everything in the middle sharp and it's ultra contrasty when you stop the aperture down a little bit but when you do that you reduce the amount of light so images get dimmer so you're getting less throughput when you're on a tripod where if you're on a tracker because it's following it across the sky, it gives you the ability to maintain those long exposures, getting crisper images without everything blurring. So major, major advantages uh, when it comes to optical correction and how sharp everything across the sky looks for you. Now, uh, you can also start to use longer focal length lenses. Now, like I said earlier, nightscape work, when you're taking a foreground, like a horizon line and the night sky, generally you're going to be doing that somewhere between 14 and 35 millimeters, which isn't that long of a focal length. Eventually, you want to start shooting 
clusters and galaxies and zooming in on those nebulas and all those really cool regions and you're going to need focal length to do that and from the 500 rule calculations we just did if we're doing like a 135 or we'll say a 200 millimeter you have two and a half seconds to get that done and that's not a lot of time you're going to be there a long time clicking pictures away to get that amount so you can actually do that with a tracker you can take that 200 millimeter and mount that onto the, uh, the tracker with your camera and now it's gonna follow it just like a tiny little telescope and that's gonna help you bring out more detail because you can resolve you can make it bigger and with that longer focal length your image scale gets bigger and you can really make those images pop a lot more with longer focal length but in order for you to get those long exposures without all the streaking stars you want to be on a tracker um, so yeah, if you're starting to hit 50 millimeter and you still want to get more out of it, uh, using a tracker is going to be quite ideal. Now, like I said, we're not going to go too much into trackers today. Uh, we actually have a lot more time than I thought we would today. So if you guys have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them at this point because next week we're doing star adventurer trackers and those are we have two versions we have the star adventurer mini our little uh little little tiny guy and our regular star adventurer as well and we can take a look at them a little bit today but uh if you guys have any questions i'd love to go over uh cameras or lenses or if there's a camera you're looking at or a lens you're looking at we can you know bring it up on the, the internet right now and take a look at what's going on um, with some of that as well but uh, just some couple things to remember is that it is digital it's always digital now if you're shooting with film I commend you on that because that's just a whole nother ball game uh, at that point but have fun be creative don't worry it's digital you can always delete it if you're not happy with it or if it wasn't focused or if there's any issues with it just delete it or learn from it you can always learn from what you do all the images that you see online are beautiful but behind every image there is hours and hours of failures and you're not always going to go out and have a perfect shot and you have to you want to learn from the failures of what didn't work and then figure out how to make it work to the best of your abilities and that can all all be done from home so if you guys have any questions now uh, that's pretty much it for our presentation but I'd be happy to go over anything that you might be uh, curious about um, we can check out some lenses uh, cameras and really get into the nitty-gritty there I know some people have asked about uh, so there's there's regular DSLR cameras and mirrorless cameras um, it doesn't really matter which one you choose nowadays uh, they're both really really good um, from all the major companies so just kind of pick a brand you know I personally I I shoot Canon this is uh, my mirrorless uh, Canon EOS R works just fine but you know I've started with a Canon Rebel and the 60 DAs and you know it all works it all works really well um, so it just depends on 
what you got laying around. But if you're already set up with one particular brand, I wouldn't say there's any particular reason for you to switch um, from one brand to another because it really, you've got a lot invested in the glass already and it there's no reason to switch unless there's some advantage to you for uh, making the switch from one brand to another. But most of them have a good variety of glass to choose from and there's a lot of cool things out there now for you to work with but there is uh, all kinds of things out there that you can mess with from your house um, there are plenty of things that you can learn from home uh, if now one one big question we get is how do I find a location to go shoot or when should I go shoot well for Milky Way photography that generally starts somewhere around May and that's when the Milky Way at least here in the northern hemisphere is visible so it starts in May and goes to about mm, October ish um, early to mid October and that's generally Milky Way season but just because the Milky Way isn't up like in the winter time that doesn't mean you can't go out and shoot because the Milky Way is up in the winter time but it's not the summer Milky Way we're actually looking out away from the core at that point and that's that's gives you another type of um, Milky Way to see so for example let's just take a look at this real quick pull up a software for you um, right now we're actually using uh, SkyX uh, Pro from Software Bisque, and we'll show you this real quick here so you guys can actually see it. Bear with me real quick. So here's SkyX. Now Right now, we're gonna switch this over to, we're on May 30th right now, and this looking out in the west here, where over in the east, you can see some of the Milky Way rising. All right guys, I just saw there's some pictures or uh, questions here. Let's see. We will be doing uh, some live star parties coming up. A lot of it really has to do with the weather, of course. Uh, those are going to be done on my outreach page called Focus Astronomy. Um, so you want to keep an eye out there. And we will go out and uh, actually do a live stream like what we're doing right now. But we'll actually be streaming live images from the telescope. And that's something that we'll be doing here soon. And if you want to see when those are going to be coming around, go to uh, Focus Astronomy on Facebook or Instagram, and we'll be doing those in the evenings where you actually see live images coming off the telescope and seeing what you can do with some of that equipment. We'll post it here through Skywatcher as well. Um, we're just waiting for some clear weather at this point because out here where I'm at in Arizona, uh, we've had a lot of high haze and stuff like that. And that's just how astronomy works at this point. So. 
Uh, Jerry's got some questions. Um, are there some basic filters you would recommend for this type of photography? And actually, yes, there. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that you can actually use um, for filters. And there are light pollution filters that are coming out for cameras. Uh, not every brand is supported yet. So you want to keep an eye out for uh, what exactly you're looking for. But for example, uh, Astronomic is a filter company and they've been around for quite a while. I have several of their filters for visual work and some of their imaging filters and they work really, really well, but they also have filters for DSLRs. They might have some mirrorless stuff. The mirrorless stuff is still pretty new, so I would hang on, um, but they've got several. As you can see, they've got some for the Sony 7s, the Canon EOS M, there's some Nikons, uh, all kinds of stuff so and these are clip-in filters and clip-in filters as you can see here from the dslr actually sit inside just in front of the the camera sensor now most people are going to want to use a light pollution filter and the light pollution filters for uh, astronomic and there are several really great companies out there um, idas is a filter company uh, Optolong is a filter company, uh, STC is another filter company, and they're all kind of making their own variations of filters. But a general light pollution filter is, is generally where you want to start. And this is like the, the CLS CCD, at least from Astronomic, is one. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of other people out there making uh, filters, but a general light pollution filter is a good place to start. Um, it's going to block out a lot of the the light pollution that we have in town, and it'll actually make a lot of things more shootable from your backyard. If you actually want to see some of that done, you can always go over to our buddy Trevor Jones at Astro Backyard. He does a lot of stuff from, obviously, from his backyard, uh, but he shoots a lot with DSLRs, and he has several uh, light pollution filters that he likes to use. So he could be someone that you could check out and see what kind of results that he's getting. Um, but a general light pollution filter is a good filter to use. Um, there are these new multi-band narrowband filters coming out uh, because you can do narrowband work as well. And a narrowband filter is basically a small, a filter that has a very small section of light that it lets through. And these are excellent for light pollution. But the problem is if you're shooting a color camera that the whole chip won't be able to be used at once. And the reason is that because these narrowband filters let a small sliver of a very specific wavelength of light through. So for example, what we've got here is a hydrogen alpha filter. Hydrogen alpha is way over in the red part of the spectrum. If you're using a color camera and you put this filter on it, all the, color, all the red pixels on your sensor will light up, but none of the green and none of the blue will light up. So they can be effective, but you're gonna have to play with it, especially if you're doing a color camera. This is why a lot of people use monochrome cameras uh, because all the pixels are being lit up on a monochrome camera. On a color camera, you've got red, green, blue pixels, and imagine each pixel has a little filter in there. So the blues only collect blue light, the red only collects red light, and the green only collects green light. So if red light from a nebula comes down and it hits the red pixel, it's going to go through. 
if it hits a green or a blue pixel, it gets filtered out and it doesn't see anything. So you can use these filters, uh, but you're gonna be limited on how much you can get out of it. There's still some really good results that you can get, but now there are new filters coming out like the uh, OPT under their Radian brand has uh, their, they have a couple different uh, triads. That's the name of the series, the triad series. They're multi-band filters and they're, they give you the same effect as the narrow band does, giving you that really thin slice of light, but it does it on multiple wavelengths, which allows all the different uh, color pixels to light up so they can be really really effective so uh, that's the triad filters uh, there's there are many filters out now that are doing this STC has a filter um, Optilong has a filter uh, called the L enhance I have one of those they're quite nice uh, you want to oh if you can you want to always check out the filter graph here and if you've never read one of these, how this works is the numbers on the bottom of the graph here are the wavelength of light. So our eye can see about 380 nanometers right over here till about 700. That's the visible spectrum right there. Um, everything beyond 700 is invisible and everything beyond about 390 over is invisible. So we're wanting to look for filters that are in there. Now that's, and that's what the light uh, down here on the bottom, that's the nanometer of light. So the thinner this peak is, the narrower the filter is and the higher contrast you're gonna get. Transmission is something you really wanna keep an eye out. And as you start looking at filters, you're gonna notice some of different transmission. Transmission is how much of the light percentage goes through the filter. So some filters, if you look, they only transmit 80%. Other ones like the astronomic and a lot of the higher end filters, they're, they're doing 90, 95, almost 100% transmission because you don't want to lose any of the light. You're out there to collect light. So you don't want to lose light if you, if you can help it. So uh, keep an eye on the filter transmissions if you can. And uh, you want to find something that's got a really good transmission because you want to get that light through there and look for something that's 90 90 percent 95 better um, and then the wavelengths there can kind of help you see where they're going to be uh, letting light pollution or light through and there are out there is also uh, you'll see right here you know we have uh, 12 nanometer or 6 nanometer and the nanometer is actually how wide the pass is. So the wider it is, the more light you get. The narrower it is, the less light you get, and it's more contrasty with narrower filters. So if you're running a 12 nanometer filter, which is probably good if you're doing an SLR or nightscape work, 12 nanometer, you're gonna get more light through, which is nice. Um, but if you drop down to a six, your image is gonna be a little bit dimmer, but it's gonna be more contrasty. So there's advantages. And you can get narrow band filters from a variety of companies and we'll have to go do a little bit more in-depth um, run over of filters, especially for imaging, because there's a lot to go into there. And we'll do a whole episode on how to select filters and why certain filters are cool. And 
how to pick that filter because they're so different. So, but if you're doing nightscape work with your mirrorless or your DSLR camera, a basic light pollution filter is really all that you need. Um, if you want to go a little bit further, you can start looking at those specialized filters with the multi-band uh, pass. But light pollution or dark skies is really where you want to be with a lot of this stuff. Um, but another question that we get a lot is, where do I go to take pictures? And just before we wrap everything up here, and if you have any questions, please feel free to chime in the chat there so we can cover it before we close up here. A lot of good stuff coming in. Um, but where do we go to find a dark sky site? And that can be difficult, especially if you live in a light polluted location. So we need to find it. Uh, a location for us. Now, the website that I like to use is called uh, Dark Sky Finder. Fairly obvious. Now, this is a map of the US at least, but you can use this all over the world. It's basically just a Google map, for lack of a better term. And as you can see, it's got all the light pollution across the world mapped out. So find your location. White obviously is the worst and black is the best um, and the darker that shade is the better it is so obviously out here we have a you know this is salt lake city it looks like um, really light polluted here and it progressively gets better the further you go out but uh take some time and navigate around and check this out and see what you guys can find in your neck of the woods um, some states have a state land you can go on out here in Arizona, we have a lot of different uh, state land that we can go use without really needing any permits. But make sure you check out the property or wherever you're going to ensure where you're going, you can actually be. Um, the national parks are a great place to go um, and supporting them and keeping the skies dark. Um, you can also go to the uh, Dark Sky uh, Association. They have several places that are approved by them and you can go there there's an amazing site in new mexico uh i don't even remember the name i think it's right here that is not it but there is a there's a campground out here in new mexico somewhere that's supposed to be outstanding uh, but yeah going to the national parks supporting the national park at the same time uh, those are great places to go. Out in California, Joshua Tree is quite popular. Um, South Dakota, you've got Badlands. Uh, Utah, you've got Zion and several others. And of course, here in Arizona, we have Grand Canyon. And even out um, in the Florida Keys and Texas, you've got Big Bend. Um, so there's tons of places to go look. And even out here in the, the east, as it gets more light polluted, you'll still find pockets um, that are uh, useful and I find once you get to the green levels you're you're starting to see the Milky Way uh, blue is very very good if you can get to blue that's you've got a very nice sky and then going darker than that it just gets better and better but you'll find uh, little pockets here and there uh, but you just have to look around and sometimes it might take a little bit of a drive so um, and yeah, you've got Cherry Springs out in the northeast. Um, 
we've actually done an event if you live way up north here uh we've done an event out in maine that uh acadia night sky festival we went as sky watcher it was crazy um so that that's something you want to definitely check out so uh but if you're looking for a site you're looking for a good place to take some nightscape pictures or get out in the dark uh dark sky finder or dark finder.com is a good place to start pretty much anywhere in the world and that'll give you a way to find locations um that you're looking for and generally if you're going to be shooting the milky way you want to make sure your southern horizon is clear because that's where the milky way is going to be the further north you are the harder it's going to see that and the further down uh further south you go the more the milky way core in the summer will be seen now that's pretty much it for us but let me just peruse back through the questions here and make sure i've got everyone covered if you've got any questions feel free to ask them uh jonathan black has a question i have a, one of your older eq8 mounts i understand that you're releasing a cable to directly connect yes jonathan that is called the SynScan usb adapter uh we'll probably be announcing that in a couple weeks in a couple weeks um we we were supposed to have NEF this year, Northeast Astronomy Forum, and unfortunately with all the garbage going on right now, the reason why we're all watching this is because is where we would normally unveil a lot of our new products. So with that being said, um, in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to be doing a special episode here, two, probably two weeks at this point about all the new stuff that we're going to be bringing out in 2020 for Skywatcher. So if you want to tune in next week, we're going to be going over star adventure and trackers. It'd be the week after that. So episode four, we're going to be going over the new products for 2020 for Skywatcher right here. So we'll spend an hour on that. Um, I have pieces here right over there. I can't show you yet. So you're going to have to wait. But uh, lots of cool stuff. But yes, Jonathan, one of the new items is the SynScan USB adapter, which basically allows you to connect your system directly to a computer without the need of a hand controller. Um, a lot of our new mounts have it. The EQ8R has it, the AZ EQ5, the EQ6R, they all have a USB direct connect. Um, but there's some mounts that just don't have it. So this adapter, will allow that so it's not gonna be too expensive it's pretty small uh, but that will be coming um, a couple weeks um, we'll be announcing that and a lot of other new stuff so uh, there's that does anybody have any more questions we're just a couple minutes away from wrapping everything up uh, you guys have been awesome today thanks for hanging out with us for episode two um, next week we're going over star adventures and trackers and how to use those the advantages of them why you need one you don't of course you need one um but that will be next week so episode three and uh we'll be going over trackers and if there's anything that you would ever like to know about that we want to do an episode on email us at support at skywatcherusa.com we might even have to set up a special email for uh those looking into wanting to know more about this so each week's going to be a little bit different. We want to make each week real precise. So if you ever need to go back and watch it, they're all on YouTube. 
Um, you can watch them over and over again. And since none of us are going anywhere right now, you can watch it over and over again. Uh, let's see, shooting with a daub. I don't have any videos on that right now, but um, it's something we can discuss. Maybe we'll do like an astrophotography, um, choosing a mount for astrophotography, and we can discuss the advantages of shooting with an equatorial over an Altaz mount. Um, maybe we'll do an episode on that here in the future. Um, there's probably some information on there now on the big wide world web that you can go check that out for the time being, but that'll be something that we'll definitely check out in the future. So that's about it for today. Uh, thanks everyone who's uh, chimed in today um, and watching our second episode. I appreciate it. Keep an eye out for the Focus Astronomy live streams. It's called Star Stream. Um, we'll be making announcements on Skywatcher and my Focus page when we're going to be doing those uh, once the weather cooperates. And those will be just like we're doing here, except everything that you see up on the page here is going to be live deep sky images or planets or whatever we're shooting with that night. So keep uh, the lookout for that. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for watching. And uh, hopefully we will see you next week. Uh, you next week. Uh, you next week. Uh, you next week. Uh, you next week, uh, you next week, uh, you next week.